welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hebreos 3, 12 al 19. Verse 12. Mirad, hermanos, que no hay en ninguno de vosotros corazón malo de incredulidad para apartarse del Dios vivo. Verse 13. Antes exhortaos los unos a los otros cada día, entre tanto que se dice, hoy para que ninguno de vosotros se endurezca por el engaño del pecado. Verse 14. Porque somos hechos participantes de Cristo, con tal que retengamos firme hasta el fin nuestra confianza del principio. Verse 15. Entre tanto que se dice, si oyeréis hoy su voz, no endurezcáis vuestros corazones como en la provocación. Quienes fueron los que habiendo oído le provocaron, no fueron todos los que salieron de Egipto por mano de Moisés. ¿Y con quienes estuvo él disgustado 40 años? ¿No fue con los que pecaron cuyos cuerpos cayeron en el desierto? ¿Y a quienes juró que no entrarían en su reposo, sino a aquellos que desobedecieron? Y vemos que no pudieron entrar a causa de su incredulidad. This is the word of God. We just want to thank you for your word. Ooh, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here. Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you have to say? We're grateful, Lord, that you continue to, to work in our lives in spite of who we are, and we're grateful for the gospel of Jesus. Lord, we pray that that would come through very clearly today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can be seated. Good morning. Good morning. That was awful. Good morning. Good morning. Awesome. You got an extra hour of sleep, so there's really no excuse for that whatsoever. Um, and for those of you that are late, we're going to be having a meeting with you later because that was really bad um, if you get an extra hour. So I, my name's Kevin. I'm the lead pastor of Church at the Well. If you're new here, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Um, we've been preaching through the book of Hebrews. We've called this series The Greatest. And ultimately, it boils down to um, Jesus being superior and supreme over all things. That's what the author of Hebrews is attempting to accomplish through this. Last week, we talked about a lot of Old Testament stories from like Exodus 17 and Numbers 14 and, and all of these um, stories revolving around Moses. And hopefully you got to hear that last week because we're basically kind of picking up right where we left off. If you weren't here last week, it's okay. You can listen to the podcast if you like um, later, but um, I'm going to catch you up just a little bit. So if you will, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Starting at verse 12, and we're going to jump around just a little bit today just to, to make this a little bit more clear. Starting at verse 12, it says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is an interesting passage of Scripture because we know that the first thing that he says is take care, brothers, meaning he's writing to those who actually have put their faith and trust in Jesus. And then he talks about this warning, be careful not to fall away. Be careful not to let your heart get hardened. Be careful that you're thinking about the things that you need to, because if you don't, then this could lead to what he's calling an unbelieving heart. And this is what we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about today is this unbelieving heart. And then if you jump down to verse 15, I'm gonna finish the passage for you because this finishes our story from last week. And before I read it, I guess this is what struck me last week because I was finishing up last week and I was thinking about the message and how things went and so on and so forth and the impact that it can make and thinking about the Old Testament. I guess I was overwhelmed with the concept that it was the individuals who had trust at be the beginning in God. That means they had enough trust to follow Moses out of Egypt. They had enough faith to say that God is going to be there for us. They saw the miracles that we talked about last week, the, the opening of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the, the, this journey to the promised land, the promises that God was going to give them, all of these things that they saw. And these are the individuals who actually aren't going to enter the promised land. And when I thought through that, it was a little bit overwhelming. Because I think oftentimes what we think is, well, if I saw that, I would believe. So 
Before I dive into the rest of this, and it's going to defend this idea that we got to remember that who we're talking about aren't the individuals that we would consider like, oh, these are like pagans. These are individuals who are just out there believing whatever it is that they want. These are individuals who, you know, they're not, they're outside the church. From our context, he would be referring to people in the church who have potentially expressed faith in Jesus and it seems like their heart seems to be shifting away. And so when we read verse 15 through the end here, 19, this is what it says. As it is said, and some of this is repeated from last week, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? The answer would be yes. And with whom was He provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And the answer would be yes. Verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they were, would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. When we process through this, I, so I, I was raised in a church that um, I, I've mentioned before, it, it maybe, maybe gave me a little bit different theology than what I believe is actual, uh, correct today. Um, and I talked about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago, but one of the things that I remember the church always teaching me is that once I was saved, I was always saved. Meaning, once you place your faith and trust in Jesus, and he does all of the work for that, then he will persevere to the end. And that's accurate doctrine. Meaning, when you come to faith in Christ, there's this thing that transpires. You know, Scripture talks about the fact that light can't pick darkness. So at some point, light has to be revealed to you if you're in darkness. So Jesus makes himself known to you. You come to faith in Christ. You believe the gospel, meaning Jesus lived the life you were supposed to live, died the death that you deserve. Three days later, rose conquering sin, Satan, and death forever and says if you put your faith and trust in that and not you, then you will be saved. Right? That's the gospel. And so when we put our faith and trust in that, it says that a bunch of things happen. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and enters us and resides in us forever as far as the rest of our our days on this earth i don't know what that looks like once we have passed but the holy spirit comes in and seals us the we're adopted into the family of god we are we are his and then there's passages of scripture all over the place where jesus himself says what i've started i will finish no one will be able to rip you out of my hand why because i did this you didn't and I will finish it. It's not, re not required that you're going to finish it because I started it. And this is good doctrine. Meaning if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are, I mean, what do you want to say? Once saved, always saved. There's nothing that can overpower the salvation in the gospel. Meaning your sin can't do it. Somebody else's sin can't do it. Once you are his, you are his. That's an important understanding. Now let me express the opposite view. Um, if you have grown up maybe in a tradition where it says, listen, you can come to faith in Christ and this, you, choose, you choose Christ and then you've put your faith and trust in Him, but there's things that you can do over time that would actually prevent you from being saved, meaning you can lose your salvation. We have an issue. Because now it means that in order for me to regain my salvation or to come back to Christ, it's all on me and not on Him. So it's no longer faith alone in the Gospel. It becomes a faith plus works mentality. And that's not Christ. Meaning, let me get to the heart of this. If, if this is really accurate, then what it means is that your sin is actually more powerful than Jesus' death. Not only that, but if that's true, then your repentance is more powerful than His resurrection. It's not true. 
So th there's, there's a, a, a thing here that gets difficult when we look at passages of Scripture like this because we go, it sounds like in this passage that individuals who are professing faith have over time not persevered and they're not entering his rest. And then I'm going to say to you that that's accurate. So what do we do with this? And this is the problem. This is where the rub comes, right? And so as I was finishing last week's sermon and I got to the end, I had a question. Actually, I had several questions, and I hope that you developed some questions within your small groups where you were like, okay, I get this. This is impactful. I understand like, how this Old Testament story is relating to me, so on and so forth. I get the gospel, but I wasn't really given a solution. If people like the Israelites, people like these individuals who were pulled out of bondage physically and saw the parting of the Red Sea and saw manna from heaven come and saw the Shekinah glory of God literally reside with them, saw all of the miracles that occurred, if they're capable of actual unbelief, then what do I do? Because frankly, I doubt you've seen those things. If you have, please come talk to me. Um, I'd be interested. <laughs> but I haven't. I, I, in all reality, I don't, I've never needed to go from one side of a river to another and the Lord parted waters for me. Now, I can say that he has, figuratively, he's made a path for me, he's, open doors for me, so on and so forth. But when I'm talking about physically seeing what these individuals saw, the odds are you haven't seen that and I have not seen that. And as human beings, it seems like the individuals who would see those things would be most likely to believe, not develop an unbelief. I hope I'm making my case here because it, it should resonate with you a bit. Because like I said, I hear it all the time. It's like, man, if Jesus would just show up and do what he did that I read, I would believe. And my constant response to that is, no, you wouldn't. And, you know, and people would go, well, why? Well, I don't know exactly, but I know that, Jesus, that Judas saw everything that Jesus did, and he didn't believe. And so when we move to the Old to, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see some of the same things transpiring, right? There's story after story of Jesus doing miraculous things and people going, I, don't, I still can't believe that. Judas was there. Judas saw Jesus walk on water. Judas saw Jesus feed the 5,000. Judas saw Jesus raise people from the dead. Judas saw Jesus do things. I mean... If we come, if you want to come for, you know, like, is it just Judas? Well, no, we get to a place where Peter actually denied Christ as well. Um, oftentimes when we're comparing Peter and Judas, it's an interesting study because at, at Jesus' death, both deny Christ. One is restored, one goes and commits suicide. And this is a great example of what we're talking about today. How is it that Peter is restored? Why isn't Judas? They took two completely different responses to the same sin. What is it that was in them that caused them to do that? So I want to start this way. First of all, have you ever said this? Like, Lord, can't you just show me? Like, wouldn't it be easier if you just showed up? Like, Especially today, right? We've got internet. We've got CNN could like be there. Like Jesus, you could show up and the entire world would actually see you do a miracle. But the problem is seeing isn't believing. You see a lot of things that you don't believe. I mean, the internet has proven that, right? CGI, AI, all of these things that that produce things that aren't true. 
but appear to be. And so we're constantly questioning. Well, so think back if you were in Jesus' day, yeah, they didn't have cell phones and they didn't have AI and they didn't have computers, but that, that human doubt that resides in every one of us is still there. And if you had seen Jesus do something, you probably would have been, well, what's the trick? How did this happen? Where's the wires? Right. What, what kind of new technology has been developed that Jesus can make this kind of illusion occur? And I think one of the things that we have to get past is this idea that if Jesus would just perform the way that we want him to, that we would be all in. Because the reality is you wouldn't be. The scriptures are full of it, right? Adam and Eve walked with God still chose something different. And you can just take it from there all the way to Judas and say, this is evident throughout Scripture. Individuals who seem to be close to God, who got to see miraculous things, still found themselves in moments or found themselves at the end of their life with unbelief. Jesus preached a sermon once that talked about communion and he had just fed the 5,000 and he went over to the other side of this body of water and individuals came and followed him there and they're like, Jesus, like, teach us more, teach us more. And it says in the scripture that one of the reasons that they came is because they were hungry and they wanted him to do another miracle for them. And he gives, he gives us hard teaching about communion and that if you're not a part of me, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, then you have no part of me. And they took that literally to the point where they said, we can't follow this. And it says that they turned and walked away from Jesus. And it's in those moments where what you see and what you believe clash. And this should be the question then, what do we do with that? What do we do with it? People I know all the time, they'll have situations in their life where maybe they're not a believer, but they might call me or maybe they'll call you and say, hey, I've got a dire need. I've got somebody in the hospital. I've got a parent who has cancer. Whatever it is, whatever the emergency is, would you please pray for me? And you say, well, of course I will pray for you. And we do. And it's a privilege. And they get through, and I, I've yet to have one of these unbelievers call me and say, hey, would you just pray for this trip that I'm going on? And then I say, yeah, I'll do it. And then they call me back and they tell me, oh, man, I couldn't believe the Lord just showed up in this miraculous way, right? There's always this contradiction that's going on. We want God to perform for us, but when it comes to the hard things of God, we go, ah, I don't know. I think in order for us to grasp what the author of Hebrews is saying here and its importance is we're going to have to see this in our own life. And I'm doing the best that I can to try to bring you to a place where you're going, yeah, I've been here. I might be here right now. I might have said that. I might have said, Lord, just show up. I might have said, Lord, just, I just want to see what's happening here. Miracles are happening every single day in our lives. Whether we attribute those to him or not is a different story. Sometimes we ask for prayer, prayer occurs. I, I always tell people there's three answers to prayer. There's yes, there's no, and there's wait. Yes and no we typically can handle, although we don't like no's. Wait is the worst. We understand that. But there's, there's three answers to prayer. And when we pray for something, that is likely one of those answers is going to happen. Yes, the Lord's going to do what we're asking Him to do because it's in His power and sovereignty and his plan to do it not because we've enticed him to sometimes it's no because he says in, in our perspective i'm going that would be the greatest answer to prayer that you could possibly give and lord if you answered this in a way i, I literally pray sometimes lord would you do this in a way that others have no choice but to see that it's you which is a i think a holy prayer and then the Lord goes, well, no, I'm not doing that. That person is going to die. Or 
that miracle isn't going to happen. And you go, well, why? Because God's smarter than me and more intelligent than me and his plan is better than mine and he is sovereign. And sometimes he says, yeah, I'm going to answer that, but you're not ready for me to give that to you yet. I can give you that gift now, but it'll destroy you. I could answer that for you now, but you're going to squander it. So sometimes it's a wait. All of these things play in our hearts and our minds. And what can happen over time is individuals who maybe have wandered into a church like this one, and they've listened to the gospel, and they've said, I believe. I'm in. And obviously, we can't see people's hearts. I don't know whether an individual actually believes or doesn't. The Scriptures say that we can tell by fruit. There's evidences of it. But there's also a lot of evidence and a lot of of times when an individual comes in and it seems like they're just so gung-ho for the gospel, they're putting their faith and trust in it, and it lasts kind of a, a short period of time, like it's this flash in the pan, and then maybe things get hard, and God doesn't begin to perform the way that they're expecting. Or maybe there's a circumstance in life that they push what they're claiming they believe off to the side and and run with what they want or maybe it's just a pure sin issue where we talk ourselves into well i mean i'm not i'm not as bad as that person and this is really desirable for me and i'll try to make this work within what i'm claiming that i believe even though it doesn't and i justify it and then over time that person's just gone and we go, well, what happened? Like, how is it that they saw these things, they had these emotions, they, they declared this belief, and then years down the road or whatever's going on, they're just gone? And how does that play into the fact that once they're saved, they're always saved? And I'm going to give you a simple answer to that. It's, Likely, if somebody dies with unbelief, they weren't actually saved. And you go, well, but they profess Jesus. So here, I'm going to give you an argument for this really quickly. Um, If you had a conversation with Satan and you asked Satan if Jesus exists, what would he say? Yes. Yeah. If you had a conversation with the demons and said, hey, does Jesus exist? Is is he the son of God? Did did he die on the cross? Was he risen three days later? What would they say? Yes. Yes. But they're not saved. They declare truth out of their mouth. They can. But that truth that comes out of their mouth isn't turning into belief in their heart. So it's possible that individuals can say, well, I like the idea of Jesus. I like the idea of the gospel. I like the idea that Jesus died for me. I, I, I believe that he rose from the dead, but never actually believe it. Now, I don't believe that every single person in the generation that we're talking about here that died in the desert was an unbeliever. There's just, the odds of that are pretty small. But I will say that this generation that we talked about last week where the Lord said, you know what, I'm not giving you the promised land, this is the wait, until that entire generation of rebellious individuals is completely gone. The believers that held their belief, and we know that there were some, we know that Scripture talks of at least two in Joshua and Caleb, had to go through the same issues that those who didn't believe go through. Same punishment, but I would venture to say that the difference would be that people like Caleb and Joshua who believe are gonna handle those circumstances much different than individuals who don't believe. And even in the midst of punishment and that, that difficulty in the desert, 
there would still be fruit and evidence of belief from the ones that believed. And so what I'm trying to do is help you answer the question. We get asked a lot, like, how do I know if I'm a believer? Because I read stuff like this. Like, I profess that Jesus is Lord. Scripture says that you can't profess that without the Holy Spirit saying it through you. So that's a true statement, but does that mean that you're saved? Well, not necessarily. Truth came out of a donkey in the Old Testament. So how do you know? Well, does the Holy Spirit reside in you? Is there evidence of gospel fruit in your life? When you sin, is there need to repent? Not because you're afraid that you lost your salvation, but because you believe the Gospels and its freedom so deeply that you can't wait to repent so that you can experience the freedom that He gives. When Scripture says that we're to live obedient lives in Christ, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. We're far from it. We're going to sin consistently. But... Is there this desire to be with Jesus, to know Jesus, to trust Him? Is there, is there fruit in your life to say, I know that I need to be on mission. I know that my life has been bought at a price. And therefore, there's evidence in my life that I am not my own, I am His. It, it's... It can be complex in the aspect that discipleship or the sanctification process can take time. And none of us are truly sanctified until Jesus comes back. Which means you're constantly going to be blowing it. But how do you handle it when you blow it? That's a evidence of the Spirit being present or not. How do you handle others? Is evident. How do you handle other sin? How do you handle others when they come and ask for forgiveness? Do you readily give it? Jesus does. Part of the fruit of the Spirit would be, I'm not only willing to give forgiveness, but I can't wait to give you forgiveness. Why? Because Jesus gave me forgiveness and He does every day. In this passage... There's two very practical and important components that help individuals who claim faith in Christ finish strong. And if you truly want to know, I guess it helps that as well. These are the questions like last week that I was pondering, right? Like how, if you thought, if you really thought through it, those questions should have come in your mind. Like, what do you mean they didn't enter his rest? Weren't they his people? What does that mean? Is that talking about just in the now, or is that talking about eternity? And the answer to that would be, well, yes, both. Those who believed went through the suffering and now, but belief takes them into joy and eternity. So, let's turn to starting at verse 12. Actually, 12 answers both of them. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 13 and 14 is going to provide two things, two exhortations. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Number one, you are not made to be a Christ follower on your own. This is, I don't care what you have seen culturally. I don't care how healthy you get with your counselor. I don't care how much church hurts you may have experienced in the past. To declare that you have the ability to remain in your faith 
that you have the ability to continue serving Jesus outside of the entity that he created and leads is arrogance and sin. It's, it's as silly as this. It's as silly as saying, I play a team sport, but I'm the only one that matters. That never works. You have to have people around you that are constantly reminding us what we believe and why. Encouraging us to live in the faith and in obedience. You have to have it. And, and, and there's so many things here that, that I could address in this because think about it. When you're down, when you're depressed, when you've blown it, what is the first thing that your heart tells you to do? Isolate. And you're like, well, but I'm supposed to listen to my heart. No, you're not. Like, this is this, is this crazy thing. Like, I don't know. It, it, is, it is from the pits of hell and this beautiful plan by our enemy that has got people to say, trust your heart. Do you know why? Scripture says your heart is wicked and deceitful and will mess with you. It says it over and over. We can't trust our heart. If I trust my heart, I'm going to do everything I want to do when I want to do it, and it's going to lead to utter destruction. And I don't have to tell you that because you do the same thing. Sure, trust your heart. Watch what happens. You know what happens. And so oftentimes when we find ourselves in these positions where it's like, man, I'm, I blew it, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, we want to remove ourselves from the light, put ourselves in darkness, isolate ourselves, because our heart says what? You're not worthy. No one loves you. No one cares. If people really knew who you were, they wouldn't be around you. If people knew what you did, they wouldn't want to be around you. And as if you take this thought process to conclusion, all you're saying is, Jesus, if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't have died for me. And he says, that's why I died for you. Because I know who you are. I died for everything that you've already done. I'm gonna, I died for every single thing that you're going to do in the future. And I still love you. And I still care for you. And I will not abandon you. And I will provide people for you. We call it the church. Is the church perfect? No. Why? Because it's made of dirty, rotten sinners. One of the jobs of a pastor is to watch out for wolves. You know, this is a charge for pastors. It's, it's not a fun charge, to be honest. There's a lot of things about paying pastors that aren't fun. But this isn't one. A wolf is an individual who, to your face, proclaims faith, but has an agenda when they come into the flock. Individuals who have agendas are really easy to spot. Wolves aren't always. Ever heard the term wolf in sheep's clothing? That's a thing, right? We have an enemy. An enemy has agents. He'll send people in and just attempt to create chaos and utter destruction and distrust. Not only in God, but with people. We've had plenty of these come into even a small church like this. And sometimes we've caught them early and sometimes we haven't. And we have to deal with the ramifications of it. But individuals, just because somebody says that they believe Jesus doesn't mean that they do. Now it's not, once again, I can't see people's hearts, so if you tell me you believe in Christ, then I'm going to say, praise God, welcome to the family. But then the job of the pastor is to watch and see what is the fruit. What is actually happening? Are they getting involved? Is there... Is there this serious desire to be around fellow believers because that comes from an understanding of pure gospel? Or is it constantly isolating? It's constantly complaining. It's constantly just showing up when it's convenient. It's, 
I mean, life's life, but you watch that stuff. What would it look like if, you know, you say, well, you're a pastor. Yeah, but I'm still a dirty, rotten sinner. So what would it look like if I said, well, yeah, I'm going to lead this church, but, you know, I'll be here when I can be here. Small group, nah, I don't really, not really my thing, but you guys should do it. Living on mission, yeah, not really my thing. Like, you guys have different gifts than me, so go. And I'm just going to kind of do my thing, but I'll stand up here on Sundays when it's convenient and just tell you what to do. What? That's not good. What's the difference? I think when we're looking at this passage of Scripture, there's two things that resonate here. The first is we are to hold each other accountable. Uh, Julie mentioned church membership. Why is church membership so important? Church membership, all this is, all church membership is, it's not like you get like, here's the benefits of church membership, like you're joining a country club. Right? Golf's half off, whatever, right? It's not, not, not how that works. Church membership is covenantial. It means you're coming in and saying, I am asking the elders of church at the well to hold me accountable to live a life that I'm claiming I desire to live. That's what church membership is. Because I can't hold you accountable unless you tell me to. Pastor Matt can't hold you accountable unless you tell him to. So it's why when you go through a church membership, we're going to go, here's the covenant. Are you going to sign it? If you sign it, then we're going to sign it and say, this is what we're promising. This is what you're promising. And we're both going to blow it, but we're going to do it together. That's what church membership is. The church wasn't designed for people just to walk in and out of. It wasn't designed for people just to show up and go, oh, well, it's Sunday. I don't have anything else to do. I'll just go and listen to some good music and listen to a guy preach way too long. That sounds great. That's not what church is designed to be. It's why we, I mean, when you think of like church at the well, there's really, I mean, we've made this as simple as we possibly can. We only ask people to do three things. Well, four, really, by combined. So we'll say four to make it simple. Try to show up at church on Sunday. Get involved in a small group. Serve when we do things of service. And live your life on mission. Those are it. We don't want to overprogram you. We don't want to. I, I think the, the most impact that we're going to have in this city is when you get filled amongst each other and then go out and live it amongst those who don't believe. That's mission. The, the most impact that we have, I mean, if you look at evangelically, the greatest impact that this ministry has had is the coffee houses. Why? Because they're building relationships with people on a daily basis, and they're showing what living on mission looks like. And you go, well, do I have to do that in a coffee house? Well, no, you should be doing that every day. That's the church. Any other understanding of the church is sin. It's wrong. Well, you don't know what happened to me at church. If I left church because of church hurt, I would be a pastor for about a day. You could go to any pastor that you know, pick the... This is the rock star pastor and say, if you had to leave because you got hurt by somebody at the church, how long would you last? And they would say, five minutes. It happens. We all hurt each other. Family. Who do you hurt the most in your life? Those who are closest to. People that really know you. The ones that you declare to love. The ones that declare to love you hurt you the most but we don't abandon it. It says here that we're to exhort one another daily. That can't happen for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. Can't. That's why I say, like, you need... If you were saying, okay, I can't, I'm coming to church on a regular, I'm, meaning I'm coming to this service. I don't even like calling this church. Like, semantically, I don't love it. 
It's a component of church. Whose church? The people. Right? So we come together. Why do we come together on a Sunday morning? So that we can be exhorted, so that we hear the word, so that we're encouraged, so that we're convicted, so that we can participate together in holy communion, so that we see each other and we fellowship with each other and we bond together and we're reminded that we're not alone. Why do we send mission teams? Well, for a whole bunch of reasons, but do you know what? They're going to be there on a Sunday and they're going to be worshiping with a church. And what does that help us remind? It's not just our church. The church is vast. It's all over the world. There's people meeting right now at the same time in other places in Boston. Great churches. We don't have, a, we don't have this like patent on Jesus. That's the church. But just coming here is not enough. So we say, okay, well, get into a small group. Why? Because I can't hold you accountable for this. As small as we are, I don't ever know who's here and who's not. I don't, I, I'm sorry. I love you, but I don't. I don't know. I don't know how many weeks in a row you've missed. I've had people come and go, I haven't been here in like six weeks. You didn't call me. And I'm like, I didn't know. Well, you don't look for me? No. Why? Because my job is to serve those who are here. But if you're in a small group and you stop showing up, your group knows. There's accountability. If you're in a Bible study, and you're not there, people know. There's accountability. As you build small relationships with individuals, it's those people that can hold you accountable. Right? That's the church. That's the exhortation that needs to be there. So I may not notice that you were here three weeks, but whoever's leading your small group or somebody else in your small group knows. And sometimes I do know that you're not here and I'll go to your small group leader and I'm like, hey, I haven't seen them in three weeks. Oh, well, let me tell you why. And I'm like, great. I know they're being taken care of. So my greatest moments, I, so when I was in California, I pastored a large church. And when I say large church, we're talking about a large church. Okay, and this isn't to boast. It was big. We had a huge staff. I think there were eight full-time pastors on staff. Okay, and there's tons of people. There's so many. I don't know everybody that goes to this church. I'm, I will walk in the store. Somebody will come up to me and start talking to me. And I'm like, I don't know who you are. And they've been a member at our church for 20 years. And I'm like, oh, I'm really sorry. Right? I, big church. My favorite things in the world was I would hear like somebody is in the hospital. I might even know this person. And I go to the hospital and I show up at the hospital and the small group that they're a part of is already there. And they've already taken care of meals and they've already taken care of the kids and they've already and nobody cares that I'm not there. Why? Because I'm not going to provide them the best care anyway. I don't know them. But their small group does. Those who are exhorting them daily do. This is the church. <laughs> the largest church in the world is in South Korea. It has over 100,000 members. One pastor. His name's Pastor Cho. Do you think Pastor Cho goes and visits everybody? Uh, <laughs> that'd be crazy. And it's growing. So if you go talk to Pastor Cho, he would tell you the only way this works is because we have all of these little cell groups that are meeting all over everywhere. And it's those little tiny things that are holding people accountable. Yes, we're part of a larger body. But that's how I know what's going on. The church is here and you have to exhort one another. The other component of this is that you have a responsibility to fellow believers. When somebody's not there, you should text. How hard is it to send a text? Dude, haven't seen you in a while. Where are you? What's going on? How you feeling? I know you're out of town next week. Will I see you at church on Sunday? We, we hold each other accountable. That's this exhortation. We, we hold each other accountable to live the life that 
And, and this is what I want you to see. Like, it's so weird because you hear this and you're like, that sounds, you realize what a gift this is that Jesus didn't go, I'm saving you and now I'm putting you over here on an island by yourself. Go. There was a, a story in Old Testament about a guy named Elijah who actually complained about this. Right? He was doing this miraculous stuff for the Lord. He ends up fighting all of these prophets of Baal, which was a false god. And then at the end, if you like this kind of thing, he takes the sword and he kills them all. It's pretty radical. And then Jezebel, this queen, comes after him and he runs. And he runs off to the desert and he goes into this cave and he starts complaining to God. God, I'm the only one that believes. I'm the only one that believes. And God's like, why would you think that? You think just because I know you and you've done some, and I've allowed you to do some really interesting things partnered with me that you're the only one that knows who I am? He's like, I've got remnants everywhere. But it was so bad that he ended up saying, Elijah, you're done. Your ministry's over. You're no longer going to be the tool that you were before. The church is a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. You get to do life with people who understand. You get to do life with other dirty, rotten sinners who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior and attempt to live for him in this wicked, dirty world. You get to. You get to walk through your hardships with other people. You get to. The, the saddest thing in the world, the saddest thing I hear is when a, a Christ follower will say, I'm so lonely, and I'm like, that's your fault. Because that's one thing that we should never experience. And I'm going to end this section with this. God is a triune God for a reason. Even God is never lonely. You are created in his image. You are not created to be alone. So if you're attempting to do it on your own, what's going to happen? You're going to fall into a category of unbelief. Especially if you're one that says, I think I believe. Not 100% certain. But I'm going to do it on my own. Because the church, eh. Next. And this is just kind of a, a summary here. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I love this passage of scripture because it answers a whole lot of the, basically answers all of the other questions. It says that we're to hold our confidence firm to the end. The confidence of what? That we had at the beginning. What does that mean? The belief that we placed in the gospel. If you are truly a believer in Jesus, I don't know that you could tell me the moment that you were saved. I don't know that you can tell me. I mean, I, I, I'll tell you, it was like third grade. And I can remember like when I understood the gospel. But I don't, I don't have this like, but I, ha I have a memory. But I can tell you this. Like I knew I was a believer. I knew what I believed. I had it. It was there. I, there was an excitement in me. I remember standing up and going, why am I the only one standing? Did you guys not hear this? Do you understand? And they're all looking at me like, you know, he stood up. And I'm like, you, what are, you, are you kidding me? You were just told the greatest truth in the history of the world and you're just sitting there. Do you remember that moment? You have to. If you know Jesus, you remember that moment. You remember the moment where you, everybody looked at you maybe and went, you're crazy. Or everybody celebrated because you finally came to faith in Jesus because they'd been praying for you so long. I don't know what your story is. They all look different. But I guarantee you, if you have a faith in Jesus, you have a moment. And it, this is everybody's moment, though different, is the same. Why? Because it requires belief in the same thing. What does it require belief in? It requires that you come and understand that I'm a dirty, rotten sinner and I need a savior. So you come in contact with your own depravity. You, you, you actually get to this point where you find literally on your knees or figuratively on your knees going, I'm a mess and there's nothing I can do. And ultimately, God, you're right. I actually deserve hell. 
and however you said it, but you come to that realization. And then you go, but Jesus, you, you died for me, and I believe that. And then three days later, you rose, conquering sin, Satan, and death for me. I believe that. Like I know that's true. I know without a shadow of a doubt that you have done that for me, that if I put my faith and trust in you, that, that, that I'm yours, that I'm adopted in, the Holy Spirit lives in me. I know that you're sitting at the right hand of the Father. I know that you're coming back. I know that my, my eternity is secure in you. I know that you have that belief. And it's saying, if you want to avoid this idea of unbelief, belief, then you have to go back to those moments. You have to hold fast to that truth the rest of your life. And you go, well, how do you do that? It's not like you walk around and you're just excited all the time. You wake up in the morning, you're like, okay, I'm going to go back to that moment. Woo! And all day, I'm just going, yes, 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 yes. I mean, you can do that, but you're going to be exhausted. And Frankly, it's not realistic because you're going to have some experience as soon as you start doing that with somebody who's going to really anger you. And you're not going to look at them and go, Woo, Jesus! I mean, maybe you will. But the odds are it's not going to happen often because we live in a sin-cursed world and sin-cursed bodies. We're surrounded by things and we're in, in, engulfed in things that aren't Jesus. But we have to hold tight to the truth. It's called perseverance. We love perseverance. We love stories of perseverance. We love the athlete who did it. We love the athlete who didn't win but finished. Those moments, right? Like, I don't even remember who it was, but the story of like, this, this guy who ends up getting hurt on his Olympic race and his dad literally comes out of the stands. The race is over and carries him to the finish line. And I'm like, man, if that isn't a picture of the gospel, I don't know what is. Sometimes we don't have the ability to lean on ourselves because we're so weak and so it feels like Jesus has to carry 100%. But he will. We have to persevere. We have to. We have to get to this place where we're reminded that the, that thing that I believe, that thing that I know changed my life is constant. And if that's true, if Jesus really saved me, then I believe that he can hold me to the end. Now here's the thing. This is so cool in doctrine. If he did save you, you will hold on till the end because he's the one that perseveres. That's really cool to think about. He's like, I did all the work for your salvation. I'm going to do all the work for your sanctification. And all you got to do is just kind of go for the ride. But I'm asking you to celebrate the room and remember and persevere in the heart because your life will be a whole lot better as a result. Now think through that for a second. It's so much easier. Like, if you think of the desert moment in the Old Testament, we've got all of these people and they've now been cursed by God to live in the desert until they die. That's not happy. I'm miserable in that moment. But the ones that believed went, okay, God, you're sovereign. God, you're holy. I love you. They didn't even have Jesus yet, so all they had to do was, all they could go is, I know there's a Messiah coming. And that's what my faith is in but I'm going to serve you and love you and persist no matter how horrible this desert is. That's belief. And do you know what? True believers find joy in those moments. They don't just survive. They thrive. We've seen this. Your stories, modern stories of missionaries that are going into extremely difficult places and you listen to their story and you're like, why would you ever do that? And they're like, what do you mean why? I get to. And you're like, I just want a piece of that joy. How are you doing it? And you know what they're saying? How are you not? You're so spoiled. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we've mixed some things. Maybe we've bought into prosperity gospel more than we think that we have. 
Maybe we need a little bit more hard. In fact, isn't it the hard that really shows what your heart believes? True believers will actually come to a place where they go, Lord, I don't love the hard, but I'll actually thank you for it because I'm watching how it's growing me in the midst of it. A true believer will actually get to a point sometimes when you go, Lord, my life's too easy. I need a little hard. I need to be stretched. I need you to grow me. If I just stay where I'm at right now, I'm just complacent. And complacent is, complacency is definitely an inner, uh, enemy of Christianity. It, it causes our heart to just be okay with whatever. Sometimes we need to pray for the hard. Sometimes the most holy prayer isn't, Lord, remove the trial. It's, Lord, can you give me joy in the trial? We have two things here. One, church is important. You've got to get over your church hurt, whatever that is, your misunderstandings of the church, and you have to start seeing, stop seeing churches as just an entity. Church is the people that are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And they're all over the world. And anytime we get to be with them, it's a celebration. And they get it. It is like being in a club a little bit. Have you ever met somebody and you're like, you're a Christian? And they're like, you're a Christian? And you're like, oh. <laughs> kind of geek out on them a little bit. Like, I didn't know that. Oh my gosh, secret handshake, whatever. And then second, you got to remember, you were saved. He pulled you out of the pit. He forgave your sin. He adopted you into his family. I, Christy and I had a conversation this week with Anna Maria. And if you don't know her story, she came into our family, but we've never adopted her. And she's now older. And we said, we would really like to make this formal even though you're an adult. And she said, that would be wonderful, right? But here's the now, can you imagine if we said, here's the thing, Anna, we're gonna bring you into our family, but then we're just gonna ignore you completely. And we're gonna have no expectations for you. And when things get hard, you're on your own. That's not how it works in the church. When you're adopted in, you're family. And it never changes. Now, whether you choose to take advantage of the family that you've been given or not is on you, and there will be ramifications for that. But to actually get the benefits of family and ignore it is crazy. It's crazy. I, we have to remember the privilege that we've been given through adoption. You are part of God's family. You are saved. You are restored. You are loved. You are never abandoned. You are never alone. You've been given gifts to use. The Holy Spirit is there to guide you so that you're never without wisdom if you don't want it. it you have everything that you need in the gospel to live the life that the Lord has for you. To complain about that, to be bitter over it, it's just like slapping Jesus in the face. And in some ways it's going, oh, I'm glad you died for me, but I don't know why you died for that person. Or Lord, I wouldn't have put them in my family. So there's a couple things here. One, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what you believe. I would say here's the first truth is that if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are not part of a family. You're not part of a church. You don't know God because you can only know God through Jesus. So if you're here and you're like, I want this. I want to be a part of this. Like this is 
I want to believe this, then your first thing that you have to do is what I described before. You come in contact with your own depravity, you realize you're a dirty, rotten sinner. It's not hard to get to that point. It really isn't. But it is hard to get to the point where you go, I can't save myself. Even though the American dream tells me I can be whatever I want and I can just keep working for it, you can't. Because it requires a sacrifice. And the sacrifice it requires, according to scripture, is your life. So you can't sacrifice your life and live your life at the same time. So you need something to sacrifice for you. What is that? Jesus. He sacrifices for you. So you need to put your faith and trust in him. You can do that today. You, you, you can hit your knees and profess faith. You can talk to someone and ask questions. Pastor Matt's back there. I'll be in the front. You can turn to the person next to you and ask them. For the church, these are heavy questions. And I think, I don't need to get into any more specifics, but you need to wrestle with these things. Who would you have been in the desert? Who are you in the desert? Are you moving toward unbelief or are you remaining strong in your belief? Are you using the tools that the Lord has given you, the privileges of family? Or are you abstaining from those things for some reason? Is your sin keeping you from that? What is it? But true belief means that we don't just believe that Jesus is capable of giving us heaven in eternity, but we also believe that He's capable of giving us the ability to live joy-filled lives with purpose now. And why we have separated those two things, I do not know. So what needs to change? Every week we take communion. It's an opportunity to respond. We're reminded that if there's any change that's going to concur in us, it's going to happen, have to happen at the foot of the cross. Some of us need to spend some time repenting. Some of us need to change a perspective. Some of us need to, if you're walking through major issues in the desert and you're questioning God instead of finding joy and thriving in the midst of it. Some of you need to embrace your family, the church. Some of you may be in a situation where you're just looking at your current circumstance and going, I cannot believe that I get to walk this life and I just need to celebrate. And everybody's gonna be in a little bit different spot. But I'm asking you, don't leave here the same. Girls are gonna come up, we're gonna sing a couple of songs and communion elements are both sides for you. You can partake when you see fit. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, I'm overwhelmed that you don't give up on us. Even when we find ourselves in moments when we're not we're not being the obedient individuals that you've asked us to be. You don't give up. You pursue us. Lord, I pray right now that there's anyone in this room that has never professed faith in you, and Lord, they they can feel you pursuing them. They feel it, and it's real. Lord, I ask that you would give them the boldness and the courage to, to stand up and ask questions. Lord, I know that people here, there are some who don't believe, and Lord, they, they need you. In fact, right now, while all heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I would just ask if you are here today and you have never given your life to Jesus, but you're 
feeling compelled to do that, would you just raise your hand real quick? Thank you. Lord, we pray for your church. We pray that we would understand the privilege of the life that you've given us. The brothers and sisters in Christ that you've given us, the gifts that you've given us, the ability to remember what you've done for us, the Holy Spirit to help us persevere. Lord, may we live in this desert world in a way that glorifies you. Lord, would you fill us with joy no matter the circumstances that are around us. Lord, would you help us to be different? Would you help us to embrace the gift of the church that you've given us, the family that you've given us? And Lord, would you allow us to be a family that exhorts one another all for your glory? Lord, you tell us that others will know who we are by how we love each other. But Lord, I pray that we would never dictate or put temporary conditions on that love. That even when we blow it with each other, that you would remind us that we're part of your family and we're only here because of you. So may we always find that common ground. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.